Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Dane County Judge Jacob Frost became the third judge to order Michael Gableman, the legislature's election reviewer, to not delete records related to his probe of the state's presidential election. Frost's order was in response to a lawsuit from American Oversight, a liberal watchdog group after Gableman admitted during a court hearing last month that he deleted records from, from his review. Gableman was found in contempt by Judge Frank Remington last month and was ordered to pay $2,000 per day until he turns over the records related to his probe. Wisconsin's spending on elementary and secondary education continues to decline compared to the national average. New data from the Wisconsin Policy Forum shows the state to be 5.6% below the national average. Wisconsin spending ranked at dead in the middle, 25th among the 50 states in 2020, down from 24th the previous year and 11th in 2002. The decline correlates with a drop in Wisconsin's state and local tax burden and national tax ranking as state officials sought to prioritize reductions in property taxes and income taxes. Wisconsin's smaller spending increase is largely attributable to a decline in benefits, benefit spending for school staff. The last state budget capped what districts could take in in the form of state general school aid and local property taxes. Those limits could further slow growth in school spending here relative to the rest of the country. The Wisconsin Supreme Court will release decisions on three important cases this Friday, reports WKOW. The election case will determine whether clerks can set up drop boxes outside of government buildings and if they must be physically supervised by the clerk's office. Justices will also rule on whether voters can have someone else deliver their absentee ballot. The court will also rule on how a lower court can proceed with a case challenging Madison School's policy of allowing kids to change their name and pronouns in school without their parents' consent. The final ruling will determine whether local health officials can issue orders limiting gatherings or how businesses can operate without the approval of a local governing body, such as the city council or county board. Dane County has announced the second phase of its Yahara Lakes sediment removal project. The county hopes to dredge about 12,000 dump truck loads of sediment in the project's second phase to help improve water flow in the Yahara Lakes. Phase two of the multi-year initiative focuses on two stretches of the Yahara River, from Lake Wabisa to Lower Mud Lake and Lake Kaganza to Highway B. The work between Lake Wabisa and Lower Mud Lake started in the summer of 2021 and is expected to be completed this fall. Approximately 3,000 dump truckloads of sediment will be removed from that section of the Ahara. Between Lake Wabisa and Lower Mud Lake, Dane County is using its Dragon Dredge to help move water through the Ahara chain of lakes at a steadier clip in order to mitigate risk of flooding. The sediment removal project in the Ahara Lake system should be completed in five phases altogether. Those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. In 2018, 17-year-old Crystal Kaiser was arrested for shooting and killing a man she claimed had sexually trafficked her. 
Today, the state Supreme Court ruled that Kaiser is allowed to use that as a part of her defense. WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt has more. The state Supreme Court ruled today that Crystal Kaiser is allowed to argue that she was justified in killing the man who trafficked her in a 4-3 decision. Breaking away from the other conservative justices, Judge Rebecca Bradley joined the three liberal judges to issue the decision. Caitlin Noonan is the staff attorney with Legal Action Wisconsin. Noonan outlines the basics of the case. Essentially, uh, this Wisconsin Supreme Court was looking at a specific statute in our law that allows uh, an affirmative defense for uh, human trafficking survivors to be able to argue that the offense that they've been charged with was a direct result of their trafficking victimization. In the summer of 2018, Kaiser shot and killed a man who she says had sexually abused and trafficked Kaiser, who was 17 at the time. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, authorities did confirm that the man was being investigated for, and on the verge of arrest for, sex crimes against children. After being arrested for the murder, Kaiser was given multiple charges, including arson and first-degree intentional homicide. Kaiser has argued that, as a victim of child sex trafficking, Wisconsin law protects her from any offense committed as a direct result of the trafficking. Originally, Circuit Court Judge David Wilk of Kenosha County tried to block the defense, but a court of appeals overruled that blocking. Judge Wilk eventually appealed that ruling to the state Supreme Court, who ruled today that the defense was applicable in this case. The Supreme Court did not rule that Kaiser was justified in the killing, and only that the defense can be used. Ian Henderson is the Director of Legal Services with the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault, a coalition providing support to sexual assault service providers in Wisconsin. The group filed an amicus curiae brief in the case advocating for Kaiser. Henderson says that today's ruling simply affirmed what researchers already knew about children experiencing trauma. And when you look at particularly adolescents who experience ongoing trauma like human trafficking, that they can respond um, from a place uh, that caused the brain to basically expect danger. And they may much more operate from a fight or flight response as opposed to, you know, the rational center of the brain. Caitlin Noonan says that today's case is interesting because none of the judges fully demissed Kaiser's defense. The main difference in the majority and the dissenting uh, opinions is whether or not it, the statute offers a complete or a mitigating defense. But regardless, both, you know, all justices agreed that this is an affirmative defense that, you know, um, that trafficking survivors can employ if they're able to prevent, present, um, you know, certain evidence as it's outlined. Lawyers representing Kaiser in the case applauded today's Supreme Court decision and said that the ruling protects the legal rights of victims of sex trafficking in Wisconsin. Henderson agrees with that statement and says that this ruling will have further implications, especially for black women. It's also important to note, right, that there's a long history in this country of black girls from being criminalized for defending themselves. And there's also you know, an unequal application of our self-defense laws. You know, black girls may be perceived as less innocent, may be perceived as hypersexual and needing less protection, and therefore are more likely to be incarcerated for their responses to trauma and uh, have less access to healing services. Crystal Kaiser's next hearing is scheduled for September 9th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout.
A newly formed subcommittee in Dane County seeks to address mental health challenges among health care workers in the county and the staffing shortages that have resulted from it. The first hearing was last night, and it featured testimonies from health care workers and representatives of providers. Our reporter, Reed Kamai, has more. Last night, Dane County's Health and Human Needs Healthcare and Public Health Workforce Subcommittee held its first hearing. The subcommittee was established in May to address the recruitment, retention, and well-being of healthcare workers. Several workers, most of whom had left the profession, were on hand to recount the mental health struggles they experienced and how these were exacerbated by the pandemic. Ashley Campbell has been a bedside nurse at UW's inpatient cancer unit for seven years. She abstractly described what has led her colleagues to leave the job. And one by one, my devoted colleagues leave my unit, not because they wanted to, but because their wives and husbands have watched them become husks of their former selves, incapacitated by the moral injury, and they pleaded with them to leave. The Wisconsin Hospital Association's 2022 Healthcare Workforce Report shows a notable increase in turnover among nursing staff in 2021 compared to years prior. For registered nurses, the increase was by about 50%. For certified nursing assistants, the turnover rate rose to 32%, the highest in the hospital workforce. Dane County Supervisor Mike Baer is the chair of this subcommittee. He was moved by the healthcare workers' testimonies. Yeah, it was telling. I think it's telling about the status of this workforce and the pressure that we've put on them and the various things that we've asked them uh, to do and and the sort of lack of uh, understanding and respect and a response to all of the things that we've had to do. That was, you know, it's become very evident. A report titled The Long-Term Care Workforce Crisis illustrates the shortages in caregivers across Wisconsin. According to the report, there are over 23,000 vacancies, but only 19,600 Wisconsinites are unemployed and seeking work. The hearing also included talks from representatives of healthcare providers to hear their perspective. Amy Hermes, the chief nursing officer for Stoughton Health, said that her provider has 23 open positions and a 14% turnover rate. She pitched their efforts to recruit and train staff. We're working at a Grow Your Own pilot. We're starting with a sleep tech program right now or we're hiring them in for a certain FTE at a lower rate of pay and paying for all their education to put them through uh, the courses that they need, including paying for their exam that they'll need to be certified at the end of it with a two-year commitment. Uh, We have established a workforce development fund. So for instance, if one of our plant um, operations folks want to go on for a certification, um, it doesn't quite fall in maybe our tuition reimbursement or tuition advancement, but they can get a certification through this program. Supervisor Baer welcomed providers' acknowledgments of the issues. Well, it is encouraging to hear that employers recognize that this is a problem and that they do need to be responsive to their workers and uh, ensure that they're able to retain their workers and and recruit new ones when needed and, uh, you know, treat them uh, in a a respectful way that uh, encourages their wellness and encourages their uh, high quality of work. The subcommittee will hold a follow-up meeting to focus on solutions to these issues. A date is yet to be determined, but the subcommittee hopes to present recommendations to the Health and Human Needs Committee at its August 11th meeting. Action at the board level would follow in the months thereafter. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Gamay.
The time is now 6.18 and you're listening to the live local news on community radio station WORT. today, officials in Highland Park announced that the man who is suspected of killing seven people and injuring at least 38 more at a 4th of July mass shooting had traveled to Madison after the shooting. Additionally, they revealed that the alleged shooter had seriously contemplated carrying out another shooting here in Madison. Top Madison officials quickly gathered for a press conference to inform the public of everything that they know. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhaupt was at the press conference, and we air it tonight in its entirety. Uh, my name is Chief Sean Barnes. I'm the chief of police for the Madison Police Department. Uh, joining me is Sheriff Calvin Barrett uh, and also our mayor, Satya Roach Conway. Uh, earlier today, we learned more about the intentions of the person suspected in the Highland Park parade shooting. Today we learned that he contemplated carrying out a similar attack here in Madison. I will not speak his name. I will not share a picture of him. According to authorities in Highland Park, the suspect observed the celebration here in Madison and decided not to attack the celebration for reasons undisclosed by the investigators. The investigators also did not disclose where the suspect observed this celebration. Um, this is Madison. We are a vibrant and welcoming city, and I'm sure there were several um, events going on throughout the day. I will share this. On Monday, July 4th at approximately 5 p.m., the FBI contacted the Madison Police Department and requested mobilization of our SWAT team. They believe the suspect could be in the Madison area. Our SWAT team began the process of mobilization and staging when we were subsequently informed that the suspect was already in custody in Illinois. Uh, at that time, we released our teams. We were aware that the FBI was still in our city uh, looking for additional information, and subsequently we learned that a cell phone belonging to the suspect was found uh, in nearby Middleton, just not in the city limits of Madison. Today I join you, uh, our Madison residents, and feeling frustrated, frustrated that more families uh, and more people are forever changed and or scarred by another mass shooting in our country. Now we will never know for certain uh, what stopped him, but I am thankful that no innocent lives were taken from our city. Monday is another painful reminder that mass shootings are far too common in our country. The Madison Police Department has long recognized this and has developed a series of response plans in case such a situation would take place here in our city. 
We cannot share specifics of the investigation, obviously, because it is being led uh, by the FBI. But we want to take a moment to thank uh, those agencies who are handling the investigation, those that ran towards the dangers um, of that scene during that parade, those who immediately gave aid to people, and those who sought to find the suspect and hold him accountable. Uh, this is not the time to disin disinvest uh, in policing. This is a time to invest in police training, technology, and equipment to keep us all safe. I want you to know, I want the Madison community to know, that we are committed to providing a safe community through our planning, event staffing, and event management, which includes our amazing special, um, special events team, as well as our SWAT, uh, SWAT team, who also responds um, concurrently when we do have special events here in the city of Madison. Uh, my name is Calvin Barrett, and I am the Dane County Sheriff. The Dane County Sheriff's Office extends our deepest uh, condolences, thoughts, and prayers to the victims, family members, and to the entire Highland Park community. I know it will take time for families and the community to move forward, but know that our Dane County community will be with you each and every step of the way. July 4th celebrations are an American tradition. We celebrate our independence in small and large towns all throughout our country. And the attack on July 4th was an emotional attack on each and every community here in America. The reports uh, explain that the person who was arrested for the shooting uh, may have visited the Dane County area. The Dane County Sheriff's Office is not currently involved in the investigation, but we are able, willing, and ready to provide any assistance when request requested. Public safety is the Dane County Sheriff's Office top priority, and we will work with each and every one of the agencies here in Dane County to ensure safety. That includes our state, local and federal agencies as we will continue to ensure that our Dane County community is a safe place to work, live, and visit. We encourage all of our Dane County residents and visitors to continue to be vigilant and support or report any suspicious activity if seen. If you see something, say something by calling 911. And this isn't just for adults, this is for children teenagers on social media platforms. If you see something or read something that is concerning, please call 911 and let us know immediately so we can intervene. The Dane County Sheriff's Office will continue our proactive approaches to violence reduction by hosting free active assailant preparedness training for community organizations. Community members can sign up for the free training by, con or by visiting the Dane County Sheriff's Office website at danesheriff.com, clicking on resources, then clicking on emergency preparedness. The Dane County Sheriff's Office will continue our efforts to reduce gun violence by collaborating with the Madison Police Department and holding a gift cards for guns buyback program on Saturday, August 13th at the Alliant Energy Center. Gun owners can turn in any unwanted, unused, or unnecessary guns in return for gift cards to purchase gasoline or groceries. There are too many guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them, and we in America must confront head-on the epidemic of gun violence that threatens our lives each and every day. No, 
that the Dane County Sheriff's Office and every agency here in Dane County, elected officials and community members are working hard in a collaborative effort to ensure that you all can enjoy yourselves at parades, at community events, at school, while you're at work, and while you're in our community safely. And we will not rest until everyone is safe and our streets are peaceful. Thank you again for your time. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news here on WORT. Earlier today, Highland Park officials announced that the man who is suspected of carrying out a mass shooting at a 4th of July celebration came to Madison after the shooting. They also stated that the shooter had seriously contemplated carrying out another shooting here in Madison. Top Madison officials quickly gathered for a press conference to inform the public of everything they currently know. Here's Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway. I want to start by expressing my heartfelt condolences to the families of the victims and to the entire community in Highland Park who are mourning those killed and trying to heal from this horrific event. Today's news that a suspected shooter traveled to Madison and contemplated violence here is deeply disturbing and only underscores the fact that we need a national approach to dealing with gun violence. Weapons of war have no place in our community. This time, the shooter wrecked havoc in Highland Park and drove to Madison. Next time, it could be anywhere. On his way here, he drove past hundreds of communities celebrating the 4th of July. All of us are at risk when weapons of war are on our streets. And while I appreciate the bipartisan agreement reached last week, Congress must pass common sense gun safety laws to protect our communities. Assault weapons and large capacity magazines must be banned in our country. Each and every one of us must call on our federal and state representatives to take action and to take action now. We are the only developed country that allows this mayhem to be part of our daily lives. It does not have to be this way. We can make different choices in this country. We should not have to live in fear of gun violence in our schools, on our streets, or at our celebrations. Here in Madison and in cities across the country, we are doing what we can to control illegal guns, to hold people accountable for gun violence, and to invest in violence interruption and violence prevention. But we cannot do this alone. We need Congress to do its job and to protect our communities. Thank you. After the press conference, a reporter brought up that the shooter had shown several warning signs with his posts on social media before the shooting. They asked if the city or the county were doing anything to investigate online extremism in our community. Speaking first is Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett, followed by Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway. 
Yeah, so we do have a criminal intelligence unit, and if we receive information, um, if it's public, we can go on and kind of look, but we do not uh, have a covert unit. We don't have any special software. We're not looking at people's Facebook or Twitter feeds or, 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 or that sort of thing. Um, but you do raise a very good question. Uh, so if you look at some of these things that are happening throughout the country, one thing that it's common to me is that there was something that happened or that was said on social media that gave someone pause. And I do think it's time to take a look at how do we alert when that happens. Uh, social media companies are making a lot of money off social media. We just ask for a little bit of help when something comes across that may be hate speech or that may be, uh, that may be indicative that they're planning to do something violent. Again, as the sheriff stated, we need everyone's help. You know, even little children who are on some of these pages, these closed groups and things of that nature uh, that are that are talking this stuff. It is scary. We live in, we're all living in a different time now with the social media. And you can post something or say something and instantly thousands of people, sometimes maybe even millions, will see it or hear it. And I think that words have always had power and we need to acknowledge that. And cyber words certainly uh, have power. Did you want to say anything about that? <clears throat> Yeah, I would just uh, add on to that. We do, too, have uh, detectives that work very closely in regards to that and monitor those types of things. But again, nothing on our end that's covert or goes towards uh, affecting anyone's privacy. Uh, but we are aware, we are vigilant in what's happening, and we share information and details and data, not only with our own agency, but with other agencies here in Dane County. I just want to add, yeah, I just want to add one thing at the end there, because I, I really want to emphasize the point here. That if you see something on social media that's concerning to you, that suggests violence, please, please report it. We are going to do our best to watch, but we need the community's help in doing this. I also want to emphasize the degree of cooperation that you're seeing here. Certainly locally, we have good cooperation, but that is also true nationally. And over the months and years regarding different things, we've cooperated with national groups that monitor social media uh, for concerning events and have been alerted by them. And we will continue to cooperate that way. We'll continue to cooperate with the FBI as needed on this event and on any other events that require that. And this is going to take all of us to tamp down the level of violence, particularly incidents like this one. And we do need the community to be watchful um, and to share if you see something concerning, whether that's, again, live in our community or on social media. You've been listening to a press conference by top Madison officials sharing everything they know about the Highland Park shooter and his presence here in Madison after the shooting. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie Help. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us this evening.
This week on Parks and Landmarks, we take a look at Magnolia Bluff Park. It may be Rock County's highest hill, but as Sean Bull tells it, that's just scratching the surface. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. Rock County is boring. Wait, hold on. I'm not wrong. But what I mean in this case is that its interesting topography is spread out unevenly. Wisconsin's southern gateway is a flat, rectangular slab of land with minimal lakes or hills. The main thing it has going for it is the Rock, Wisconsin's second longest river, not counting the Mississippi, bisecting the county right down the middle north-south. But beyond the river valley, there are a few unexpected gems. My absolute favorite of these is Magnolia Bluff Park. Magnolia Bluff is a county park on Rock County's edge, a few miles southwest of Evansville. Most of the park is dominated by its namesake, a sandstone bluff with a harder limestone cap. This limestone and the surrounding hardwood forest anchor the sandstone, slowing its erosion to a minimum. This results in sharp drop-offs, exposing brilliant orange sand between bushes and wild grass. But little of this is visible from a distance. From the road, Magnolia Bluff looks like any other forested southern Wisconsin hill. Even driving in, the first thing that might impress you is the scale of the parking lot, rather than the bluff rising above. For what it's worth, the infrastructure here is pretty nice for a county park. Magnolia Bluff's lower lot is downright spacious, providing room for maybe 30 cars. The driveway then slopes gently up the hill, winding up to the top, where a second lot has room for a dozen more. One might think that so much pavement is wasted on the few thousand residents of nearby Evansville and Broadhead. I can think of a few parks which are much more popular and only have half this space for automobiles. But all this asphalt has a couple key benefits. First, Magnolia Bluff is one of the most handicap-accessible parks of its size. You can see most of what the park has to offer from a wheelchair which is a pretty rare distinction. Secondly, it's nice to have extra spots for a busy day when people have to park their trailers. Like many rural parks, Magnolia Bluff offers trails for horses, and it's one of the more unique equestrian tracks in the area. Most local horse trails feature prairies, but these are almost entirely through woods. I've never ridden, but I imagine it's an entirely different vibe when you compare riding grassy trails to being shaded under an oak and hickory canopy. Your mental self-image goes from Old West Cowpoke, I think, to Robin Hood and his merry band. Of course, you're only afforded the luxury of such daydreams if you're on horseback, and presumably going fast enough to avoid the local mosquitoes. On foot, in the summer, these trails are not remarkable enough to warrant spraying up for a hike. Picnics are the purview of pedestrians at Magnolia Bluff. The park provides one of the prettiest backgrounds around for such an event. At the end of the blufftop parking lot, a gravel path leads past dozens of towering black oaks. Underneath this leafy ceiling, a mowed mat of grass underpins a scattering of picnic tables and park-issue charcoal grills, each sitting at the ready on a single iron post. This shady plateau continues for some hundred yards, narrowing to a point at the far end. It's at this point that the south and west edges of the bluff break away, revealing the orangey-yellow sand beneath. 
Though this ledge offers a commanding view of the farmland to the west, you'd be forgiven for not realizing you're standing near the highest point in Rock County. Some point on top of the bluff, probably farther back by the horse trails, rises 178 feet above the surrounding plains. 178 feet does sound like a lot, but for those of you more familiar with Madison, the hill at Elver Park, nowhere near the highest point in Dane County, is four and a half feet taller. The Wisconsin State Capitol building, though man-made, is still over a hundred feet taller than that. If you want to feel on top of the world, and sheer elevation is all that matters to you, Magnolia Bluff won't do much to impress. No matter how you measure, it won't even crack the top 40 highest points in the state. But everything's relative, isn't it? And unless you're a cartographer, hills are measured by emotional impact as much as their actual difference from the surrounding land. This is where Magnolia Bluff succeeds. Honey-colored sand pops against kinds of foliage you won't find for miles around. You're high up enough to see into the next county, but you could look down three feet, and that's interesting too. In an area of the state that's fairly homogeneous, Magnolia Bluff is a breath of fresh, if slightly elevated, air. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's s-e-a-n dot b-u-l-l at w-o-r-t-f-m dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we managed to miss out on the heavy weather yesterday, which is not to say we didn't get some pretty good thunderstorms, especially in the evening hours. We picked up uh, one and a third inches of rain just in the hour between 7 and 8 p.m. yesterday. Uh, for a total, uh, by the end of the day, of nearly two inches, 1.9, I believe it was, at the airport. But much higher totals were received in the counties just to our south, where a stalled frontal boundary had been lingering through much of the day. There wasn't a whole lot of convergence along that boundary, and thermal contrast was pretty diffuse across it, but with dew points approaching 80 degrees to its south, there were huge amounts of upward-directed potential energy in place. So with a nearly uncapped environment above that yesterday, and with a little extra boost from an incoming lake breeze off of Lake Michigan, uh, towering midday cumulus soon reached their level of free convection, the point vertically at which heat released from condensation is on its own sufficient to drive further upward motion, in this case at uh, fairly good velocities, uh, pretty much all the way up to the tropopause. Wind shear yesterday was strong enough to prevent storms snuffing themselves out, but generally with light winds through much of the air column, uh, somewhat oppositionally directed north of the front as well, that made for a slow and sometimes wandering storm cell motions leading to huge precipitation uh, totals in local areas, especially given the deep warm atmosphere and the amount of uh, moisture present. Uh, 3.2 inches of rain was recorded near Monticello and 4.6 inches in Blanchardville. 
Out to the west along the warm front, though, was where the uh, more worrying weather was transpiring. By mid-afternoon yesterday, a forward-propagating thunderstorm complex in South Dakota became engaged enough with the stronger upper winds out that way to accelerate into what we classify as a derecho, a fast-moving complex of thunderstorms, which raced east-southeastward across northern Iowa at us after that at an impressive speed. The storm complex made uh, for spectacular viewing, if you saw it on the satellite or radar imagery yesterday. Dozens of wind reports with velocities between 60 and 100 miles per hour, 96 miles per hour is the fastest one I saw, were logged by the Storm Prediction Center during the ensuing hours. But with the slightly less dynamic environment further east, uh, which had also been well overturned by that time by thunderstorms in the afternoon, the onrushing complex became less organized as it reached Wisconsin and then produced only a kind of a slight uptick in convection when it passed here about 10 o'clock in the evening. Well, if you have a look at the water vapor image of North America that's linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, you can still have a look at that fast-moving system darting southeastward from South Dakota last night past us. Uh, a little less impressive there than it was on the visible wavelengths the, uh, yesterday evening. More importantly, though, you can see there the trough ridge trough configuration in the upper air across the continent from west to east. An upper pattern that's going to continue to influence the weather here over what looks to be a coming week or more ahead. Wisconsin is where we often are in summer in relation to a pattern like that. On the northeastern periphery of the upper ridge with its hot air sitting out over the plains. And though it's a bit hard to see on the water vapor because of the high clouds there that are visible, the ridge is actually now backed south and southwestward away from us towards central Missouri and southern Illinois, a state of affairs that's much more evident on the visible satellite image of the upper Midwest on the weather webpage, on which you can see cumulus streaming southwestward in the incoming cooler air across Wisconsin and well down into Illinois. This first incoming cool high-pressure cell will hold over us uh, into tomorrow before being supplanted then by a slightly stronger one uh, later tomorrow and Friday, or on the day Friday, I should say. Whether we get an ingress of enough warm air and moisture in between those to uh, throw us another round of thunderstorms is a question the short-range computer models are struggling with currently. The trend has been drier the last few runs, but I'd still say there's a fairly good chance of at least a few showers passing through the area tomorrow or overnight into Friday. The weekend after that looks quite nice, though. Uh, so for just a few details on the coming forecast tonight, passing low clouds should uh, slowly clear out, but high clouds will continue to waft through skies, uh, possibly joined by some low stratus and patchy fog as we get on towards tomorrow morning, given light winds and a fairly damp near-ground environment. Temperatures will drop to the low or mid-60s on light east uh, northeast winds, generally below about 5 miles per hour. Tomorrow, light east to southeast winds may have a hard time mixing out any low clouds, but I think we should see some sun during the day, which will take us to the mid and upper 70s, uh, with a similar slightly damp uh, range of dew points in the upper 60s like we saw today. Showers and possibly a thunderstorm might work into the area later in the day or in the overnight period. That would be likelier to the west and south. Temperatures will drop to the low or mid-60s again on uh, veering northeasterly winds overnight, which will increase a bit as we get on towards Friday morning. 
And Friday, we'll see a slow decrease in clouds as drier and slightly cooler air starts to work into the area on increasing northeasterly winds, which will come up to 5 to 10 miles per hour during the day. Temperatures will reach the mid-70s. Uh, will uh, drop to around 60 overnight with better clearing on light northeasterly winds. And Saturday looks mostly clear with just some diurnal cumulus growth and a high temperature in the mid to upper 70s on lighter easterly winds. Uh, similar regimen for Sunday, uh, low 60s to start and uh, up closer to 80 that day with winds uh, veering lightly southeast and south, uh, possibly bringing an uptick in clouds as well. Uh, at the moment, at the station in, on Bedford Street in downtown Madison, the temperature is 78 degrees, the dew point temperature is 67, winds are out of the northeast at uh, 10 miles per hour. Uh, we're currently overcast up at about 3,500 feet, and the barometer's been at uh, 30.00 inches of mercury for the past couple hours and continuing to hold steady. It's now 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to early July 1962, when the city starts a work program for relief recipients, tears down houses for a surface parking lot, and gets conflicting advice about an auditorium and convention center. Stu Levitan has the headlines from 60 years ago on this week's Madison in the 60s. All They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, early July, 1962 Madison should forget about building both an exhibition hall and a separate public auditorium and instead just build a single-level, flat-floor, arena-type building to serve both purposes. That's according to two experts from the International Association of Auditorium Managers hired by the City Auditorium Committee. The experts recommend a flat floor space of 40,000 square feet, which could handle a convention of about 2,500 people, with portable seats and risers brought in for concerts and theater events. In size and scope, the proposed 72,000-square-foot building would be sharply reduced from the original 300,000-square-foot Monona Terrace project designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, which Mayor Henry Reynolds killed through a referendum in April. Among the elements originally planned but now no longer being considered, an art gallery, community center, and small theater. But the man the city has hired to figure out where the facility should go is not impressed by this modest proposal. 
I would not corrupt my building to design primarily for conventions, says internationally renowned urban planner Ladislav Sego. We see the primary purpose of this building as one serving the community. There is too much emphasis on the flat floor, he says. Sego also doesn't like the consultant's recommendation to build on the block just west of the Capitol Square, bounded by North Henry and Broome Streets and West Mifflin and Dayton Streets which for several years has been a city parking lot. Madison is best known for its lakes, he tells the auditorium committee. To build the auditorium away from the lakes would be out of character for the city. Although Sego had strongly favored putting the auditorium in Conklin Park on Lake Mendota when he drafted a comprehensive master plan for the city in 1939, he assures the committee he's keeping an open mind about which lake to build on. Mayor Henry Reynolds, though, has made clear he strongly supports the Conklin Park site and remains firmly opposed to the Law Park site on Lake Monona. The city's Work for Relief program gets underway as the Board of Public Welfare approves four work projects for which relief recipients can be assigned. The new program requires able-bodied relief recipients to work as a condition for receiving welfare payments, which will continue to be based on need. The four projects approved include snow shoveling around parking meters, spring cleanup of municipal parking lots, bringing the files at the building inspection department up to date, and maintenance work at the city's alternate civil defense control center at Blue Mounds. When 60 truck drivers from Teamsters Local 695 went on strike against eight lumber and fuel companies on June 25th, they did not count on the company staying open by using management and non-union personnel to make deliveries. So on July 5th, they escalate their action by putting up picket lines at building sites using lumber or fuel from the struck companies. Now they have to hope members of the Building and Trades Council will honor those lines and shut down the projects. Central High School isn't shutting down, at least not until 1972, the Board of Education decides, but it isn't getting any significant physical improvements. Superintendent Philip Falk agrees the basketball court is inadequate and the band room poorly designed, but he tells the board he, quote, can't justify large expenditures in an area of declining enrollment. Falk suggests Central could play its basketball games at the downtown auditorium the city hopes to build soon. The board also takes under advisement Falk's suggestion that the school administration offices move from their current location in the old Doty School on West Wilson Street into the Washington School at the corner of Bedford and Dayton Streets. And it thanks Mr. and Mrs. Walter Frouchy for donating the funds, about $2,700, to buy 17 acres of picnic area near the Madison School Forest near Verona. It's academic freedom, a willingness to be different, and emphatic support for free speech that has made the University of Wisconsin, quote, astonishingly great, UW Vice President Fred Harvey Harrington tells the Board of Regents at his last meeting with them. It is very difficult to leave the University of Wisconsin, says the historian, who is doing just that to become president of the University of Hawaii. The city's historic old Gates of Heaven Synagogue at 214 West Washington Avenue has been sold again, this time to the Fiore Coal and Oil Company. 
The building, designed by local architect August Kutzbach and constructed of sandstone from the great quarry behind the Cuba Club on University Avenue, served the Shari Shomayim congregation from its dedication in September 1863 to 1879, when it was rented out to the First Unitarian Society. When the Unitarians opened their own meeting house on Wisconsin Avenue in 1886, a private academy moved in. Followed over the decades by the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the First Church of Christ Scientist, and the English Lutheran Church. Undertakers Arthur and George Gill bought the building in 1922, later renting it to the Full Gospel Assembly Church, the McGuire Funeral Home, the federal government to warehouse books and papers during World War II, the Church of Christ, and since 1948, dentists Stuart Kelly and James Griffin. It was in the then-new synagogue that the Wisconsin legislature met in April 1865 for a public memorial service to mourn the death of Abraham Lincoln after his assassination. The Fiore Company will probably use the historic building for general office purposes. State Street parking gets a boost as the city council okays plans to tear down buildings in the 200 blocks of West Gilman and West Gorham streets for a 60-space surface lot. But the council rejects the proposal to create a permanent committee to consider all matters relating to liquor licenses. Supporters of such an alcohol license review committee said it would save the council much time it currently spends on license renewals and suspensions. But opponents successfully argued it would subject the six committee members to too much pressure from the tavern lobby. And a belligerent bus driver from the Madison Bus Company is fined $53 for disorderly conduct after he's ticketed for speeding and not having a driver's license on his person. Frank A. Balistrieri, 26, was allegedly clocked by police doing 40 miles an hour in the 25-mile-an-hour zone in the 2800 block of Milwaukee Street. But when the officers started writing the tickets, Balistrieri became belligerent, got back on his bus, and drove away. His agitation increased when the officer caught up with him, leading to the citation for disorderly conduct and his off-schedule trip to the city lockup. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Writing the headlines this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Reed Kamai. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman is our on-air engineer, and Nate Wuggy helped produce the newscast. Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>